Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain, Chapter 55 Rebellion in the Camp Charms of Nomadic Life, Dismal Rumors, En Route for Jericho and the Dead Sea, Pilgrim Strategy, Bethany and the Dwelling of Lazarus, Bedouins, Ancient Jericho, Misery, The Night March, The Dead Sea, An Idea of What a Wilderness in Palestine Is, The Holy Hermits of Mars Saba, Good Saint Saba, Women Not Admitted, Buried from the world for all time. Unselfish Catholic benevolence. Gazelles. The Plain of the Shepherds. Birthplace of the Saviour, Bethlehem. Church of the Nativity. Its Hundred Holy Places. The Famous Milk Grotto. Tradition. Return to Jerusalem, exhausted. We cast up the account. It footed up pretty fairly. There was nothing more at Jerusalem to be seen except the traditional houses of dives, and Lazarus of the parable, the tombs of the kings, and those of the judges, the spot where they stoned one of the disciples to death, and beheaded another, the room and the table made celebrated by the Last Supper, the fig-tree that Jesus withered, a number of historical places about Gethsemane and the Mount of Olives, and fifteen or twenty others in different portions of the city itself. We were approaching the end. Human nature asserted itself now. Overwork and consequent exhaustion began to have their natural effect. They began to master the energies and dull the ardor of the party. Perfectly secure now against failing to accomplish any detail of the pilgrimage, they felt like drawing in advance upon the holiday soon to be placed to their credit. They grew a little lazy. They were late to breakfast and sat long at dinner. Thirty or forty pilgrims had arrived from the ship by the short routes, and much swapping of gossip had to be indulged in, and in hot afternoons they showed a strong disposition to lie on the cool divans in the hotel, and smoke and talk about pleasant experiences of a month or so gone by, for even thus early do episodes of travel which were sometimes annoying, sometimes exasperating, and full as often of no consequence at all when they transpired begin to rise above the dead level of monotonous reminiscences, and become shapely landmarks in one's memory. The fog-whistle, smothered among a million of trifling sounds, is not noticed a block away in the city, but the sailor hears it far at sea, whither none of those thousands of trifling sounds can reach. When one is in Rome, all the domes are alike, but when he has gone away twelve miles, the city fades utterly from sight, and leaves St. Peter's swelling above the level plain like an anchored balloon. When one is travelling in Europe, the daily incidents seem all alike, but when he has placed them all two months and two thousand miles behind him, those that were worthy of being remembered are prominent, and those that were really insignificant have vanished. 
This disposition to smoke and idle and talk was not well. It was plain that it must not be allowed to gain ground. A diversion must be tried, or demoralization would ensue. The Jordan, Jericho, and the Dead Sea were suggested. The remainder of Jerusalem must be left unvisited for a little while. The journey was approved at once. New life stirred in every pulse. In the saddle, abroad on the plains, sleeping in beds bounded only by the horizon, fancy was at work with these things in a moment. It was painful to note how readily these town-bred men had taken to the free life of the camp and the desert. The nomadic instinct is a human instinct. It was born with Adam, and transmitted through the patriarchs, and after thirty centuries of steady effort, civilization has not educated entirely out of us yet. It has a charm which, once tasted, a man will yearn to taste again. The nomadic instinct cannot be educated out of an Indian at all. The Jordan journey being approved, our dragoman was notified. At nine in the morning the caravan was before the hotel door, and we were at breakfast. There was a commotion about the place. Rumors of war and bloodshed were flying everywhere. The lawless Bedouins in the valley of the Jordan and the deserts down by the Dead Sea were up in arms, and were going to destroy all comers. They had had a battle with a troop of Turkish cavalry, and defeated them. Several men killed. They had shut up the inhabitants of a village, and a Turkish garrison in an old fort near Jericho, and were besieging them. They had marched upon a camp of our excursionists by the Jordan, and the pilgrims only saved their lives by stealing away and flying to Jerusalem under whip and spur in the darkness of the night. Another of our parties had been fired on from an ambush, and then attacked in the open day. Shots were fired on both sides. Fortunately there was no bloodshed. We spoke with the very pilgrims who had fired one of the shots, and learned from his own lips how, in this imminent deadly peril, only the cool courage of the pilgrims, their strength of numbers and imposing display of war material, had saved them from utter destruction. It was reported that the consul had requested that no more of our pilgrims should go to the Jordan while this state of things lasted, and further that he was unwilling that any more should go, at least without an unusually strong military guard. Here was trouble. But with the horses at the door, and everybody aware of what they were there for, what would you have done? Acknowledged that you were afraid, and backed shamefully out? Hardly. It would not be human nature, where there were so many women. You would have done as we did, said you were not afraid of a million Bedouins, and made your will, and proposed quietly to yourself to take up an unostentatious position in the rear of the procession. I think we must all have determined upon the same line of tactics, for it did seem as if we never would get to Jericho. I had a notoriously slow horse, but somehow I could not keep him in the rear to save my neck. He was forever turning up in the lead. In such cases I trembled a little, and got down to fix my saddle. But it was not of any use. The others all got down to fix their saddles, too. I never saw such a time with saddles. It was the first time any of them had got out of order in three weeks, and now they had all broken down at once. I tried walking for exercise. I had not had enough in Jerusalem searching for holy places. But it was a failure. The whole mob were suffering for exercise, and it was not fifteen minutes till they were all on foot, and I had the lead again. It was very discouraging. This was all after we got beyond Bethany. We stopped at the village of Bethany, an hour out from Jerusalem. They showed us the tomb of Lazarus. I had rather live in it than in any house in the town. 
and they showed us also a large fountain of Lazarus, and in the center of the village the ancient dwelling of Lazarus. Lazarus appears to have been a man of property. The legends of the Sunday schools do him great injustice. They give one the impression that he was poor. It is because they get him confused with that Lazarus who had no merit but his virtue, and virtue never has been as respectable as money. The house of Lazarus is a three-story edifice of stone masonry, but the accumulated rubbish of ages has buried all of it but the upper story. We took candles and descended to the dismal cell-like chambers where Jesus sat at meat with Martha and Mary, and conversed with them about their brother. We could not but look upon these old dingy apartments with a more than common interest. We had had a glimpse, from a mountain-top, of the Dead Sea, lying like a blue shield in the plain of the Jordan, and now we were marching down a close, flaming, rugged, desolate defile, where no living creature could enjoy life, except perhaps a salamander. It was such a dreary, repulsive, horrible solitude. It was the wilderness where John preached, with camel's hair about his loins, raiment enough but he never could have got his locusts and wild honey here. We were moping along, down through this dreadful place, every man in the rear. Our guards, two gorgeous young Arab sheiks, with cargoes of swords, guns, pistols, and daggers on board, were loafing ahead. Bedouins! Every man shrunk up and disappeared in his clothes like a mud-turtle. My first impulse was to dash forward and destroy the Bedouins. My second was to dash to the rear to see if there were any coming in that direction. I acted on the latter impulse. So did all the others. If any Bedouins had approached us then, from that point of the compass, they would have paid dearly for their rashness. We all remarked that, afterwards. There would have been scenes of riot and bloodshed there, that no pen could describe. I know that, because each man told me what he would have done, individually, and such a medley of strange and unheard-of inventions of cruelty you could not conceive of. One man said, he had calmly made up his mind to perish where he stood, if need be, but never yield an inch. He was going to wait, with deadly patience, till he could count the stripes upon the first Bedouin's jacket, and then count them and let him have it. Another was going to sit still till the first lance reached within an inch of his breast, and then dodge it and seize it. I forbear to tell what he was going to do to that Bedouin that owned it. It makes my blood run cold to think of it. Another was going to scalp such Bedouins as fell to his share, and take his bald-headed sons of the desert home with him alive for trophies. But the wild-eyed pilgrim rhapsodist was silent. His orbs gleamed with a deadly light, but his lips moved not. Anxiety grew, and he was questioned. If he had got a Bedouin, what would he have done with him? Shot him? He smiled a smile of grim contempt, and shook his head. Would he have stabbed him? another shake. Would he have quartered him, flayed him? More shakes. Oh, horror! what would he have done? Eat him! Such was the awful sentence that thundered from his lips. What was grammar to a desperado like that? I was glad in my heart that I had been spared these scenes of malignant carnage. No Bedouins attacked our terrible rear, and none attacked the front. The newcomers were only a reinforcement of cadaverous Arabs in shirts and bare legs, sent far ahead of us to brandish rusty guns and shout and brag, and carry on like lunatics, and thus scare away all bands of marauding Bedouins that might lurk about our path. 
What a shame it is that armed white Christians must travel under guard of vermin like this, as a protection against the prowling vagabonds of the desert, those sanguinary outlaws who are always going to do something desperate, but never do it. I may as well mention here that on our whole trip we saw no Bedouins, and had no more use for an Arab guard than we could have had for patent leather boots and white kid gloves. The Bedouins that attacked the other parties of pilgrims so fiercely were provided for the occasion by the Arab guards of those parties, and shipped from Jerusalem for temporary service as Bedouins. They met together in full view of the pilgrims after the battle, and took lunch, divided the bucksheesh extorted in the season of danger, and then accompanied the cavalcade home to the city. The nuisance of an Arab guard is one which is created by the sheiks and the Bedouins together, for mutual profit, it is said, and no doubt there is a good deal of truth in it. We visited the fountain the prophet Elisha sweetened, it is sweet yet, where he remained some time and was fed by the ravens. Ancient Jericho is not very picturesque as a ruin. When Joshua marched around it seven times, some three thousand years ago, and blew it down with his trumpet, he did the work so well and so completely that he hardly left enough of the city to cast a shadow. The curse pronounced against the rebuilding of it has never been removed. One king, holding the curse in light estimation, made the attempt, but was stricken sorely for his presumption. Its site will always remain unoccupied, and yet it is one of the very best locations for a town we have seen in all Palestine. At two in the afternoon they routed us out of bed, another piece of unwarranted cruelty, another stupid effort of our dragoman to get ahead of a rival. It was not two hours to the Jordan. However, we were dressed and under way before any one thought of looking to see what time it was, and so we drowsed on through the chill night air, and dreamed of campfires, warm beds, and other comfortable things. There was no conversation. People do not talk when they are cold, and wretched, and sleepy. We nodded in the saddle at times, and woke up with a start to find that the procession had disappeared in the gloom. Then there was energy and attention to business until its dusky outlines came in sight again. Occasionally the order was passed in a low voice down the line, Close up! Close up! Bedouins lurk here, everywhere! What an exquisite shudder it sent shivering along one's spine! We reached the famous river before four o'clock, and the night was so black that we could have ridden into it without seeing it. Some of us were in an unhappy frame of mind. We waited and waited for daylight, but it did not come. Finally we went away in the dark, and slept an hour on the ground, in the bushes, and caught cold. It was a costly nap, on that account, but otherwise it was a paying investment because it brought unconsciousness of the dreary minutes, and put us in a somewhat fitter mood for a first glimpse of the sacred river. With the first suspicion of dawn every pilgrim took off his clothes, and waded into the dark torrent, singing, On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wistful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. But they did not sing long. The water was so fearfully cold that they were obliged to stop singing and scamper out again. Then they stood on the bank shivering, and so chagrined and so grieved that they merited holiest compassion, because another dream, another cherished hope, had failed. They had promised themselves all along that they would cross the Jordan where the Israelites crossed it, when they entered Canaan from their long pilgrimage in the desert. They would cross where the twelve stones were placed in memory of that great event. 
While they did it, they would picture to themselves that vast army of pilgrims marching through the cloven waters, bearing the hallowed ark of the covenant, and shouting hosannas, and singing songs of thanksgiving and praise. Each had promised himself that he would be the first to cross. They were at the goal of their hopes at last, but the current was too swift, the water was too cold. It was then that Jack did them a service. With that engaging recklessness of consequences, which is natural to youth, and so proper and so seemly as well, he went and led the way across the Jordan, and all was happiness again. Every individual waded over then, and stood upon the further bank. The water was not quite breast-deep anywhere. If it had been more, we could hardly have accomplished the feat, for the strong current would have swept us down the stream, and we would have been exhausted and drowned before reaching a place where we could make a landing. The main object compassed, the drooping, miserable party sat down to wait for the sun again, for all wanted to see the water as well as feel it. But it was too cold a pastime. Some cans were filled from the holy river, some canes cut from its banks, and then we mounted and rode reluctantly away to keep from freezing to death. So we saw the Jordan very dimly. The thickets of bushes that bordered its banks threw their shadows across its shallow, turbulent waters. Stormy, the hymn makes them, which is rather a complimentary stretch of fancy. And we could not judge of the width of the stream by the eye. We knew by our wading experience, however, that many streets in America are double as wide as the Jordan. Daylight came, soon after we got under way, and in the course of an hour or two we reached the Dead Sea. Nothing grows in the flat, burning desert around it but weeds, and the Dead Sea apple, the poets say, is beautiful to the eye, but crumbles to ashes and dust when you break it. Such as we found were not handsome, but they were bitter to the taste. They yielded no dust. It was because they were not ripe, perhaps. The desert and the barren hills gleam painfully in the sun around the Dead Sea, and there is no pleasant thing or living creature upon it or about its borders to cheer the eye. It is a scorching, arid, repulsive solitude. A silence broods over the scene that is depressing to the spirits. It makes one think of funerals and death. The Dead Sea is small, its waters are very clear, and it has a pebbly bottom and is shallow for some distance out from the shores. It yields quantities of asphaltum. Fragments of it lie all about its banks. This stuff gives the place something of an unpleasant smell. All our reading had taught us to expect that the first plunge into the Dead Sea would be attended with distressing results. Our bodies would feel as if they were suddenly pierced by millions of red-hot needles. The dreadful smarting would continue for hours. We might even look to be blistered from head to foot, and suffer miserably for many days. We were disappointed. Our eight sprang in at the same time that another party of pilgrims did, and nobody screamed once. None of them ever did complain of anything more than a slight pricking sensation in places where their skin was abraded, and then only for a short time. My face smarted for a couple of hours, but it was partly because I got it badly sunburned while I was bathing, and stayed in so long that it became plastered over with salt. No, the water did not blister us. It did not cover us with a slimy ooze, and confer upon us an atrocious fragrance. It was not very slimy, and I could not discover that we smelt really any worse than we have always smelt since we have been in Palestine. It was only a different kind of smell, but not conspicuous on that account, because we have a great deal of variety in that respect. 
We didn't smell there on the Jordan, the same as we do in Jerusalem, and we don't smell in Jerusalem just as we did in Nazareth, or Tiberias, or Caesarea Philippi, or any of those other ruinous ancient towns in Galilee. No, we change all the time, and generally for the worse. We do our own washing. It was a funny bath. We could not sink. One could stretch himself at full length on his back, with his arms on his breast, and all of his body above a line drawn from the corner of his jaw, past the middle of his side, the middle of his leg, and through his ankle-bone, would remain out of water. He could lift his head clear out, if he chose. No position can be retained long. You lose your balance and whirl over, first on your back and then on your face, and so on. You can lie comfortably on your back, with your head down and your legs out from your knees down, by steadying yourself with your hands. You can sit, with your knees drawn up to your chin and your arms clasped around them, but you are bound to turn over presently, because you are top-heavy in that position. You can stand up straight in the water that is over your head, and from the middle of your breast upward you will not be wet. But you cannot remain so. The water will soon float your feet to the surface. You cannot swim on your back and make any progress of any consequence, because your feet stick way above the surface, and there is nothing to propel yourself with but your heels. If you swim on your face, you kick up the water like a stern-wheel boat. You make no headway. A horse is so top-heavy that he can neither swim nor stand up in the Dead Sea. He turns over on his side at once. Some of us bathed for more than an hour, and then came out coated with salt till we shone like icicles. We scrubbed it off with a coarse towel, and rode off with a splendid brand-new smell, though it was one which was not any more disagreeable than those we have been for several weeks enjoying. It was the variegated villainy and novelty of it that charmed us. Salt crystals glitter in the sun about the shores of the lake. In places they coat the ground like a brilliant crust of ice. When I was a boy I somehow got the impression that the River Jordan was four thousand miles long and thirty-five miles wide. It is only ninety miles long, and so crooked that a man does not know which side of it he is on half the time. In going ninety miles it does not get over more than fifty miles of ground. It is not any wider than Broadway in New York. There is the Sea of Galilee and this Dead Sea, neither of them twenty miles long or thirteen wide. And yet, when I was in Sunday school, I thought they were sixty thousand miles in diameter. Travel and experience mar the grandest picture and rob us of the most cherished traditions of our boyhood. Well, let them go. I have already seen the empire of King Solomon diminish to the size of the state of Pennsylvania. I suppose I can bear the reduction of the seas and the river. We looked everywhere as we passed along, but never saw grain or crystal of Lot's wife. It was a great disappointment. For many and many a year we had known her sad story, and taken that interest in her which misfortune always inspires. But she was gone. Her picturesque form no longer looms above the desert of the Dead Sea to remind the tourist of the doom that fell upon the lost cities. I cannot describe the hideous afternoon's ride from the Dead Sea to Mars Saba. It oppresses me yet to think of it. The sun so pelted us that the tears ran down our cheeks once or twice. The ghastly, treeless, grassless, breathless cannons smothered us, as if we had been in an oven. The sun had positive weight to it, I think. 
not a man could sit erect under it. All drooped low in the saddles. John preached in this wilderness. It must have been exhausting work. What a very heaven the messy towers and ramparts of vast Mars Sabbath looked to us when we caught a first glimpse of them. We stayed at this great convent all night, guests of the hospitable priests. Mars Saba, perched upon a crag, a human nest stock high up against a perpendicular mountain wall, is a world of grand masonry that rises, terrace upon terrace, away above your head, like the terraced and retreating colonnades one sees in fanciful pictures of Belshazzar's feast, and the palaces of the ancient pharaohs. No other human dwelling is near. It was founded many ages ago by a holy recluse who lived at first in a cave in the rock, a cave which is enclosed in the convent walls now, and was reverently shown to us by the priests. This recluse, by his rigorous torturing of his flesh, his diet of bread and water, his utter withdrawal from all society and from the vanities of the world, and his constant prayer and saintly contemplation of a skull, inspired an emulation that brought about him many disciples. The precipice on the opposite side of the canyon is well perforated with the small holes they dug in the rock to live in. The present occupants of Mar Saba, about seventy in number, are all hermits. They wear a coarse robe, an ugly, brimless stove-pipe of a hat, and go without shoes. They eat nothing whatever but bread and salt. They drink nothing but water. As long as they live, they can never go outside the walls, or look upon a woman for no woman is permitted to enter Mars Saba upon any pretext whatsoever. Some of those men have been shut up there for thirty years. In all that dreary time they have not heard the laughter of a child, or the blessed voice of a woman. They have seen no human tears, no human smiles. They have known no human joys, no wholesome human sorrows. In their hearts are no memories of the past, in their brains no dreams of the future. All that is lovable, beautiful, worthy, they have put far away from them, against all things that are pleasant to look upon, and all sounds that are music to the ear, they have barred their massive doors, and reared their relentless walls of stone for ever. They have banished the tender grace of life, and left only the sapped and skinny mockery. Their lips are lips that never kiss, and never sing. Their hearts are hearts that never hate, and never love. Their breasts are breasts that never swell with the sentiment, I have a country and a flag. They are dead men who walk. I set down these first thoughts because they are natural, not because they are just, or because it is right to set them down. It is easy for bookmakers to say, I thought so-and-so as I looked upon such-and-such such a scene, when the truth is, they thought all those fine things afterwards. One's first thought is not likely to be strictly accurate yet it is no crime to think it, and none to write it down, subject to modification by later experience. These hermits are dead men, in several respects, but not in all. And it is not proper that, thinking ill of them at first, I should go on doing so, or, speaking ill of them, I should reiterate the words and stick to them. No, they treated us too kindly for that. There is something human about them somewhere. They knew we were foreigners and Protestants, and not likely to feel admiration or much friendliness toward them. But their large charity was above considering such things. They simply saw in us men who were hungry and thirsty and tired, and that was sufficient. They opened their doors and gave us welcome. 
They asked no questions, and they made no self-righteous display of their hospitality. They fished for no compliments. They moved quietly about, setting the table for us, making the beds, and bringing water to wash in, and paid no heed when we said it was wrong for them to do that, when we had men whose business it was to perform such offices. We fared most comfortably, and sat late at dinner. We walked all over the building with the hermits afterward, and then sat on the lofty battlement and smoked, while we enjoyed the cool air, the wild scenery, and the sunset. One or two chose cozy bedrooms to sleep in, but the nomadic instinct prompted the rest to sleep on the broad divan that extended around the great hall, because it seemed like sleeping out of doors, and so was more cheery and inviting. It was a royal rest we had. When we got up to breakfast in the morning we were new men. For all this hospitality no strict charge was made. We could give something if we chose. We need give nothing if we were poor, or if we were stingy. The pauper and the miser are as free as any in the Catholic convents of Palestine. I have been educated to enmity toward everything that is Catholic, and sometimes, in consequence of this, I find it much easier to discover Catholic faults than Catholic merits. But there is one thing I feel no disposition to overlook, and no disposition to forget, and that is the honest gratitude I and all pilgrims owe to the convent fathers in Palestine. Their doors are always open, and there is always a welcome for any worthy man who comes, whether he comes in rags or clad in purple. The Catholic convents are a priceless blessing to the poor. A pilgrim without money, whether he be a Protestant or a Catholic, can travel the length and breadth of Palestine, and in the midst of her desert wastes find wholesome food and a clean bed every night in these buildings. Pilgrims in better circumstances are often stricken down by the sun and the fevers of the country, and then their saving refuge is the convent. Without these hospitable retreats, travel in Palestine would be a pleasure which none but the strongest men could dare to undertake. Our party, pilgrims and all, will always be ready and always willing to touch glasses and drink health, prosperity, and long life to the convent fathers of Palestine. So. Rested and refreshed, we fell into line and filed away over the barren mountains of Judea, and along rocky ridges and through sterile gorges, where eternal silence and solitude reigned. Even the scattering groups of armed shepherds we met the afternoon before, tending their flocks of long-haired goats, were wanting here. We saw but two living creatures. They were gazelles of soft-eyed notoriety. They looked like very young kids but they annihilated distance like an express train. I have not seen animals that moved faster, unless I might say it of the antelope of our own great plains. At nine or ten in the morning we reached the Plain of the Shepherds, and stood in a walled garden of olives, where the shepherds were watching their flocks by night, eighteen centuries ago, when the multitude of angels brought them the tidings that the Saviour was born. A quarter of a mile away was Bethlehem of Judea and the pilgrims took some of the stone wall and hurried on. The plain of the shepherds is a desert, paved with loose stones, void of vegetation, glaring in the fierce sun. Only the music of the angels it knew once could charm its shrubs and flowers to life again and restore its vanished beauty. No less potent enchantment could avail to work this miracle. In the huge church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, built fifteen hundred years ago by the inveterate St. Helena, they took us below ground, and into a grotto cut in the living rock. This was the manger where Christ was born. 
A silver star set in the floor bears a Latin inscription to that effect. It is polished with the kisses of many generations of worshipping pilgrims. The grotto was tricked out in the usual tasteless style observable in all the holy places of Palestine, as in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, envy and uncharitableness were apparent here. The priests and the members of the Greek and Latin churches cannot come by the same corridor to kneel in the sacred birthplace of the Redeemer, but are compelled to approach and retire by different avenues, lest they quarrel and fight on this holiest ground on earth. I have no meditations suggested by this spot where the very first Merry Christmas was uttered in all the world, and from whence the friend of my childhood, Santa Claus, departed on his first journey to gladden and continue to gladden roaring firesides on wintry mornings in many a distant land forever and forever, I touch with reverent finger the actual spot where the infant Jesus lay, but I think nothing. You cannot think in this place any more than you can in any other in Palestine that would be likely to inspire reflection. Beggars, cripples, and monks compass you about, and make you think only of bakshish, when you would rather think of something more in keeping with the character of the spot. I was glad to get away, and glad when we had walked through the grottoes where Eusebius wrote, and Jerome fasted, and Joseph prepared for the flight into Egypt, and the dozen other distinguished grottoes, and knew we were done. The Church of the Nativity is almost as well packed with exceedingly holy places as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre itself. They even have in it a grotto wherein twenty thousand children were slaughtered by Herod when he was seeking the life of the infant Saviour. We went to the milk grotto, of course, a cavern where Mary hid herself for a while before the flight into Egypt. Its walls were black before she entered, but in suckling the child a drop of her milk fell upon the floor, and instantly changed the darkness of the walls to its own snowy hue. We took many little fragments of stone from here because it is well known in all the East that a barren woman hath need only to touch her lips to one of these, and her failing will depart from her. We took many specimens, to the end that we might confer happiness upon certain households that we wot of. We got away from Bethlehem and its troops of beggars and relic-peddlers in the afternoon, and after spending some little time at Rachel's tomb, hurried to Jerusalem as fast as possible. I never was so glad to get home again before. I never have enjoyed rest as I have enjoyed it during these last few hours. The journey to the Dead Sea, the Jordan, and Bethlehem was short, but it was an exhausting one. Such roasting heat, such oppressive solitude, and such dismal desolation cannot surely exist elsewhere on earth. And such fatigue! The commonest sagacity warns me that I ought to tell the customary pleasant lie and say I tore myself reluctantly away from every noted place in Palestine. Everybody tells that, but with as little ostentation as I may, I doubt the word of every he who tells it. I could take a dreadful oath that I have never heard any one of our forty pilgrims say anything of the sort, and they are as worthy and as sincerely devout as any that come here. They will say it when they get home fast enough, but why should they not? They do not wish to array themselves against all the Lamartines and Grimeses in the world. 
it does not stand to reason that men are reluctant to leave places where the very life is almost badgered out of them by importunate swarms of beggars and peddlers who hang in strings to one's sleeves and coat-tails and shriek and shout in his ears and horrify his vision with the ghastly sores and malformations they exhibit one is glad to get away I have heard shameless people say they were glad to get away from ladies' festivals, where they were importuned to buy by bevies of lovely young ladies, transform those horries into dusky hags and ragged savages, and replace their rounded forms with shrunken and knotted distortions, their soft hands with scarred and hideous deformities, and the persuasive music of their voices with the discordant din of a hated language, and then see how much lingering reluctance to leave could be mustered. No, it is the neat thing to say you were reluctant, and then append the profound thoughts that struggled for utterance in your brain. But it is the true thing to say you were not reluctant, and found it impossible to think at all, though in good sooth it is not respectable to say it, and not poetical either. We do not think in the holy places. We think in bed, afterwards, when the glare, and the noise, and the confusion are gone and in fancy we revisit alone the solemn monuments of the past, and summon the phantom pageants of an age that has passed away. End of chapter 55 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain Chapter 56 Departure from Jerusalem Samson The Plain of Sharon Arrival at Joppa Horse of Simon the Tanner The Long Pilgrimage Ended Character of Palestine Scenery The Curse We visited all the holy places about Jerusalem which we had left unvisited when we journeyed to the Jordan, and then, about three o'clock one afternoon, we fell into procession and marched out at the stately Damascus Gate and the walls of Jerusalem shut us out forever. We paused on the summit of a distant hill, and took a final look, and made a final farewell to the venerable city, which had been such a good home to us. For about four hours we travelled downhill constantly. We followed a narrow bridle-path, which traversed the beds of the mountain gorges, and when we could, we got out of the way of the long trains of laden camels and asses, and when we could not, we suffered the misery of being mashed up against perpendicular walls of rock, and having our legs bruised by the passing freight. Jack was caught two or three times, and Dan and Moult as often. One horse had a heavy fall on the slippery rocks, and the others had narrow escapes. However, this was as good a road as we had found in Palestine, and possibly even the best, and so there was not much grumbling. Sometimes, in the glens, we came upon luxuriant orchards of figs, apricots, pomegranates, and such things, but oftener the scenery was rugged, mountainous, verdureless, and forbidding. Here and there towers were perched high up on acclivities which seemed almost inaccessible. This fashion is as old as Palestine itself, and was adopted in ancient times for security against enemies. We crossed the brook which furnished David the stone that killed Goliath, and no doubt we looked upon the very ground whereon that noted battle was fought. We passed by a picturesque old Gothic ruin, whose stone pavements had rung to the armed heels of many a valorous crusader, 
and we rode through a piece of country which we were told once knew Samson as a citizen. We stayed all night with the good monks at the convent of Ramleh, and in the morning got up and galloped the horses a good part of the distance from there to Jaffa, or Joppa, for the plain was as level as a floor, and free from stones, and besides this was our last march in Holy Land. These two or three hours finished, we and the tired horses could have rest and sleep as long as we wanted it. This was the plain of which Joshua spoke when he said, Son, stand thou still on Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. As we drew near to Jaffa, the boys spurred up the horses and indulged in the excitement of an actual race, an experience we had hardly had since we raced on donkeys in the Azores Islands. We came finally to the noble grove of orange trees in which the oriental city of Jaffa lies buried. We passed through the walls and rode again down narrow streets and among swarms of animated rags, and saw other sights and had other experiences we had long been familiar with. We dismounted, for the last time, and out in the offing, riding at anchor, we saw the ship. I put an exclamation point there, because we felt one when we saw the vessel. The long pilgrimage was ended, and somehow we seemed to feel glad of it. For description of Jaffa, see Universal Gazetteer. Simon the Tanner formerly lived here. We went to his house. All the pilgrims visit Simon the Tanner's house. Peter saw the vision of the beasts let down in a sheet when he lay upon the roof of Simon the Tanner's house. It was from Jaffa that Jonah sailed when he was told to go and prophesy against Nineveh, and no doubt it was not far from the town that the whale threw him up when he discovered that he had no ticket. Jonah was disobedient, and of a fault-finding, complaining disposition, and deserves to be lightly spoken of, almost. The timbers used in the construction of Solomon's temple were floated to Jaffa in rafts, and the narrow opening in the reef through which they passed to the shore is not an inch wider or a shade less dangerous to navigate than it was then. Such is the sleepy nature of the population Palestine's only good seaport has now and always had. Jaffa has a history and a stirring one. It will not be discovered anywhere in this book. If the reader will call at the circulating library and mention my name, he will be furnished with books which will afford him the fullest information concerning Jaffa. So ends the pilgrimage. We ought to be glad that we did not make it for the purpose of feasting our eyes upon fascinating aspects of nature, for we should have been disappointed, at least at this season of the year. A writer in Life in the Holy Land observes, Monotonous and uninviting as much of the Holy Land will appear to persons accustomed to the almost constant verdure of flowers, ample streams, and varied surface of our own country, we must remember that its aspect to the Israelites after the weary march of forty years through the desert must have been very different. Which all of us will freely grant. But it truly is monotonous and uninviting, and there is no sufficient reason for describing it as being otherwise. Of all the lands there are for dismal scenery, I think Palestine must be the prince. The hills are barren. They are dull of color. They are unpicturesque in shape. The valleys are unsightly deserts fringed with a feeble vegetation that has an expression about it of being sorrowful and despondent. 
the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee, sleep in the midst of a vast stretch of hill and plain, wherein the eye rests upon no pleasant tint, no striking object, no soft picture dreaming in a purple haze, or mottled with the shadows of the clouds. Every outline is harsh, every feature is distinct, there is no perspective, distance works no enchantment here. It is a hopeless, dreary, heartbroken land. Small shreds and patches of it must be very beautiful in the full flush of spring, however, and all the more beautiful by contrast with the far-reaching desolation that surrounds them on every side. I would like much to see the fringes of the Jordan in springtime, and Shechem, Estrelion, Agilon, and the border of Galilee, but even then these spots would seem mere toy gardens set at wide intervals in the waste of a limitless desolation. Palestine sits in sackcloth and ashes. Over it broods the spell of a curse that has withered its fields and fettered its energies. Where Sodom and Gomorrah reared their domes and towers, that solemn sea now floods the plain, in whose bitter waters no living thing exists over whose waveless surface the blistering air hangs motionless and dead, about whose borders nothing grows but weeds, and scattering tufts of cane, and that treacherous fruit that promises refreshment to parching lips, but turns to ashes at the touch. Nazareth is forlorn. About that ford of Jordan, where the hosts of Israel entered the promised land with songs of rejoicing, one finds only a squalid camp of fantastic Bedouins of the desert. Jericho, the accursed, lies a mouldering ruin to-day, even as Joshua's miracle left it more than three thousand years ago. Bethlehem and Bethany, in their poverty and their humiliation, have nothing about them now to remind one that they once knew the high honor of the Saviour's presence. The hallowed spot where the shepherds watched their flocks by night, and where the angels sang peace on earth, good will to men, is untenanted by any living creature and unblessed by any feature that is pleasant to the eye. Renowned Jerusalem itself, the stateliest name in history, has lost all its ancient grandeur, and is become a pauper village. The riches of Solomon are no longer there to compel the admiration of visiting Oriental queens. The wonderful temple which was the pride and the glory of Israel is gone, and the Ottoman crescent is lifted above the spot where, on that most memorable day in the annals of the world, they reared the Holy Cross. The noted Sea of Galilee, where Roman fleets once rode at anchor and the disciples of the Saviour sailed in their ships, was long ago deserted by the devotees of war and commerce, and its borders are a silent wilderness. Capernaum is a shapeless ruin. Magdala is the home of beggared Arabs. Bethsaida and Chorazin have vanished from the earth and the desert places round about them, where thousands of men once listened to the Saviour's voice, and ate the miraculous bread, sleep in the hush of a solitude that is inhabited only by birds of prey and skulking foxes. Palestine is desolate and unlovely, and why should it be otherwise? Can the curse of the Deity beautify a land? Palestine is no more of this work-day world. It is sacred to poetry and tradition. It is Dreamland. End of chapter 56. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 57. The Happiness of Being at Sea Once More. 
Home as it is in a pleasure ship. Shaking hands with the vessel. Jack in costume. His father's parting advice. Approaching Egypt. Ashore in Alexandria. A deserved compliment for the donkeys. Invasion of the lost tribes of America. End of the celebrated Jaffa colony. Scenes in Grand Cairo. Shepherd's Hotel, contrasted with a certain American hotel. Preparing for the Pyramids. It was worth a kingdom to be at sea again. It was a relief to drop all anxiety whatsoever, all questions as to where we should go, how long we should stay, whether it were worth while to go or not, all anxieties about the condition of the horses, all such questions as, shall we ever get to water? Shall we ever lunch? Ferguson, how many more million miles have we got to creep under this awful sun before we camp? It was a relief to cast all these torturing little anxieties far away, ropes of steel they were, and every one with a separate and distinct strain on it, and feel the temporary contentment that is born of the banishment of all care and responsibility. We did not look at the compass, we did not care now where the ship went to, so that she went out of sight of land as quickly as possible. When I travel again, I wish to go in a pleasure ship. No amount of money could have purchased for us, in a strange vessel, and among unfamiliar faces, the perfect satisfaction and the sense of being at home again, which we experienced when we stepped on board the Quaker City, our own ship, after this wearisome pilgrimage. It is a something we have felt always when we return to her, and a something we had no desire to sell. We took off our blue woolen shirts, our spurs and heavy boots, our sanguinary revolvers, and our buckskin-seated pantaloons, and got shaved, and came out in Christian costume once more. All but Jack, who changed all other articles of his dress, but clung to his travelling pantaloons. They still preserved their ample buckskin seat intact, and so his short pea-jacket and his long, thin legs assisted to make him a picturesque object whenever he stood on the forecastle looking abroad upon the ocean over the bows. At such times his father's last injunction suggested itself to me. He said, "'Jack, my boy, you are about to go among a brilliant company of gentlemen and ladies, who are refined and cultivated, and thoroughly accomplished in the manners and customs of good society. Listen to their conversation, study their habits of life, and learn. Be polite and obliging to all, and considerate towards everyone's opinions, failings, and prejudices. Command the just respect of all your fellow voyagers, even though you fail to win their friendly regard. And, Jack, don't you ever dare, while you live, appear in public on those decks in fair weather, in a costume unbecoming your mother's drawing-room. It would have been worth any price if the father of this hopeful youth could have stepped on board some time, and seen him standing high on the forecastle, pea-jacket, tasseled red fez, buckskin patch and all, placidly contemplating the ocean, a rare spectacle for anybody's drawing-room. After a pleasant voyage and a good rest, we drew near to Egypt, and out of the mellowest of sunsets we saw the domes and minarets of Alexandria rise into view. As soon as the anchor was down, Jack and I got a boat and went ashore. It was night by this time, 
and the other passengers were content to remain at home and visit ancient Egypt after breakfast. It was the way they did it at Constantinople. They took a lively interest in new countries, but their schoolboy impatience had worn off, and they had learned that it was wisdom to take things easy and go along comfortably. These old countries do not go away in the night. They stay till after breakfast. When we reached the pier we found an army of Egyptian boys with donkeys no larger than themselves, waiting for passengers. For donkeys are the omnibuses of Egypt. We preferred to walk, but we could not have our own way. The boys crowded about us, clamored around us, and slewed their donkeys exactly across our path, no matter which way we turned. They were good-natured rascals, and so were the donkeys. We mounted, and the boys ran behind us and kept the donkeys in a furious gallop as is the fashion at Damascus. I believe I would rather ride a donkey than any beast in the world. He goes briskly, he puts on no airs, he is docile, though opinionated. Satan himself could not scare him, and he is convenient, very convenient. When you are tired riding you can rest your feet on the ground and let him gallop from under you. We found the hotel and secured rooms, and were happy to know that the Prince of Wales had stopped there once. They had it everywhere on signs. No other princes had stopped there since, till Jack and I came. We went abroad through the town then, and found it a city of huge commercial buildings, and broad, handsome streets, brilliant with gaslight. By night it was a sort of reminiscence of Paris. But finally Jack found an ice-cream saloon, and that closed investigations for that evening. The weather was very hot. It had been many a day since Jack had seen ice-cream and so it was useless to talk of leaving the saloon till it shut up. In the morning the lost tribes of America came ashore and infested the hotels, and took possession of all the donkeys and other open barouches that offered. They went in picturesque procession to the American consuls, to the great gardens, to Cleopatra's needles, to Pompey's pillar, to the palace of the viceroy of Egypt, to the Nile, to the superb groves of date-palms, one of our most inveterate relic-hunters had his hammer with him, and tried to break a fragment off the upright needle, and could not do it. He tried the prostrate one, and failed. He borrowed a heavy sledge-hammer from a mason, and tried again. He tried Pompey's pillar, and this baffled him. Scattered all about the mighty monolith were sphinxes of noble countenance, carved out of Egyptian granite as hard as blue steel and whose shapely features the wear of five thousand years had failed to mark or mar. The relic-hunter battered at these persistently, and sweated profusely over his work. He might as well have attempted to deface the moon. They regarded him serenely, with a stately smile they had worn so long, and which seemed to say, "'Peck away, poor insect! We were not made to fear such as you! In ten-score dragging ages we have seen more of your kind than there are sands at your feet. Have they left a blemish upon us? But I am forgetting the Jaffa colonists. At Jaffa we had taken on board some forty members of a very celebrated community. They were male and female, babies, young boys and young girls, young married people, and some who had passed a shade beyond the prime of life. I refer to the Adams-Jaffa colony. Others had deserted before. We left in Jaffa Mr. Adams, his wife, and fifteen unfortunates, who not only had no money but did not know where to turn or whither to go. Such was the statement made to us. Our forty were miserable enough in the first place, and they lay about the deck seasick all the voyage, which about completed their misery, I take it. 
However, one or two young men remained upright, and by constant persecution we wormed out of them some little information. They gave it reluctantly, and in a very fragmentary condition, for, having been shamefully humbugged by their prophet, they felt humiliated and unhappy. In such circumstances people do not like to talk. The colony was a complete fiasco. I have already said that such as could get away did so from time to time. The prophet Adams, once an actor, then several other things, afterward a Mormon and a missionary, always an adventurer, remains at Jaffa with his handful of sorrowful subjects. The forty we brought away with us were chiefly destitute, though not all of them. They wished to get to Egypt. What might become of them then, they did not know, and probably did not care, anything to get away from hated Jaffa. They had little to hope for, because after many appeals to the sympathies of New England, made by strangers of Boston through the newspapers, and after the establishment of an office there for the reception of moneyed contributions for the Jaffa colonists, one dollar was subscribed. The consul-general for Egypt showed me the newspaper paragraph which mentioned the circumstance, and mentioned also the discontinuance of the effort, and the closing of the office. It was evident that practical New England was not sorry to be rid of such visionaries, and was not in the least inclined to hire anybody to bring them back to her. Still, to get to Egypt was something in the eyes of the unfortunate colonists, hopeful as the prospect seemed of ever getting further. Thus circumstanced, they landed at Alexandria from our ship. One of our passengers, Mr. Moses S. Beach, of the New York Sun, inquired of the Consul-General what it would cost to send these people to their home in Maine, by the way of Liverpool, and he said fifteen hundred dollars in gold would do it. Mr. Beach gave his check for the money, and so the troubles of the Jaffa colonists were at an end. It was an unselfish act of benevolence. It was done without any ostentation, and has never been mentioned in any newspaper, I think. Therefore it is refreshing to learn now, several months after the above narrative was written, that another man received all the credit of this rescue of the colonists. Such is life. Alexandria was too much like a European city to be novel, and we soon tired of it. We took the cars and came up here to ancient Cairo, which is an oriental city, and of the completest pattern. There is little about it to disabuse one's mind of the error, if he should take it into his head, that he was in the heart of Arabia. Stately camels and dromedaries, swarthy Egyptians, and likewise Turks and black Ethiopians, turbaned, sashed, and blazing in a rich variety of oriental costumes of all shades of flashy colors are what one sees on every hand, crowding the narrow streets and the honeycombed bazaars. We are stopping at Shepherd's Hotel, which is the worst on earth except the one I stopped at once in a small town in the United States. It is pleasant to read this sketch in my notebook now, and know that I can stand Shepherd's Hotel, sure, because I have been in one just like it in America, and survived. I stopped at the Benton House. It used to be a good hotel, but that proves nothing. I used to be a good boy, for that matter. Both of us have lost character of late years. The Benton is not a good hotel. The Benton lacks a very great deal of being a good hotel. Perdition is full of better hotels than the Benton. It was late at night when I got there, and I told the clerk I would like plenty of lights, because I wanted to read an hour or two. When I reached number 15 with the porter, 
we came along a dim hall that was clad in ancient carpeting, faded, worn out in many places, and patched with old scraps of oilcloth, a hall that sank under one's feet, and creaked dismally to every footstep. He struck a light, two inches of sallow, sorrowful, consumptive tallow candle, that burned blue and sputtered and got discouraged and went out. The porter lit it again, and I asked if that was all the light the clerk sent. He said, "'Oh, no, I've got another one here,' and he produced another couple of inches of tallow candle. I said, "'Light them both. I'll have to have one to see the other by.' He did it, but the result was drearier than darkness itself. He was a cheery, accommodating rascal. He said he would go somewheres and steal a lamp. I abetted and encouraged him in his criminal design. I heard the landlord get after him in the hall ten minutes afterwards. "'Where are you going with that lamp?' Fifteen wants it, sir. Fifteen? Why, he's got a double lot of candles. Does the man want to illuminate the house? Does he want to get up a torchlight procession? What is he up to, anyhow? He don't like them candles. Says he wants a lamp. Why, what in the nation does— what? I never heard of such a thing. What on earth can he want with that lamp? Well, he only wants to read. That's what he says. Wants to read, does he? Ain't satisfied with a thousand candles, but has to have a lamp. I do wonder what the devil that fellow wants that lamp for. Take him another candle, and then if—but he wants the lamp. Says he'll burn the d old house down if he don't get a lamp, a remark which I never made. I'd like to see him at it once. Well, you take it along, but I swear it beats my time, though, and see if you can't find out what in the very nation he wants with that lamp and he went off growling to himself, and still wondering and wondering over the unaccountable conduct of number 15. The lamp was a good one, but it revealed some disagreeable things—a bed in the suburbs of a desert of room, a bed that had hills and valleys in it, and you'd have to accommodate your body to the impression left in it by the man that slept there last, before you could lie comfortably, a carpet that had seen better days, a melancholy washstand in a remote corner and a dejected pitcher on it, sorrowing over a broken nose. A looking-glass split across the centre, which chopped your head off at the chin, and made you look like some dreadful unfinished monster or other. The paper peeling in shreds from the walls. I sighed, and said, "'This is charming. And now don't you think you could get me something to read?' The porter said, "'Oh, certainly. The old man's got dead loads of books.' and he was gone before I could tell him what sort of literature I would rather have, and yet his countenance expressed the utmost confidence in his ability to execute the commission with credit to himself. The old man made a descent on him. "'What are you going to do with that pile of books?' Fifteen wants them, sir.' Fifteen is it? He'll want a warming-pan next. He'll want a nurse. Take him everything there is in the house. Take him the barkeeper. Take him the baggage-wagon. Take him a chambermaid! Confound me, I never saw anything like it! What did he say he wants with those books? Wants to read em, like enough. It ain't likely he wants to eat em, I don't reckon. Wants to read em! Wants to read em at this time of night, the infernal lunatic! Well, he can't have em. But he says he's morally bound to have em. He says he'll just go a rarin' and a chargin' through this house and raisin' more well, well, there's no tellin' what he won't do if, if he don't get em because he's drunk and crazy and desperate, and nothing'll soothe him down but them cussed books." I had not made any threats, and was not in the condition ascribed to me by the porter. 
Well, go on. But I will be around when he goes to rarin' and chargin', and the first rare he makes, I'll make him rare out of the window." And then the old gentleman went off, growling as before. The genius of that porter was something wonderful. He put an armful of books on the bed, and said, "'Good night,' as confidently as he knew perfectly well that those books were exactly my style of reading matter. And well he might. His selection covered the whole range of legitimate literature. It comprised the great consummation by Rev. Dr. Cummings, theology, revised statutes of the State of Missouri, law, the complete horse-doctor, medicine, the toilers of the sea by Victor Hugo, romance, the works of William Shakespeare, poetry. I shall never cease to admire the tact and the intelligence of that gifted porter. But all the donkeys in Christendom, and most of the Egyptian boys, I think, are at the door and there is some noise going on, not to put it in stronger language. We are about starting to the illustrious pyramids of Egypt, and the donkeys for the voyage are under inspection. I will go and select one, before the choice animals are all taken. End of chapter 57 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain, Chapter Fifty Eight, Recherche Donkeys, A Wild Ride, Specimens of Egyptian Modesty, Moses in the Bulrushes, Place Where the Holy Family Sojourned, Distant View of the Pyramids, A Nearer View, The Ascent, Superb View from the Top of the Pyramid, Bakshish, Bakshish, An Arab Exploit. In the Bowels of the Pyramid, Strategy, Reminiscence of Holiday's Hill, Boyish Exploit, The Majestic Sphinx, Things the Author Will Not Tell, Grand Old Egypt. The donkeys were all good, all handsome, all strong, and in good condition, all fast, and all willing to prove it. They were the best we had found anywhere, and the most recherche. I do not know what recherche is. But that is what these donkeys were, anyhow. Some were of a soft mouse-color, and the others were white, black, and very-colored. Some were close-shaven, all over, except that a tuft like a paint-brush was left on the end of the tail. Others were so shaven in fanciful landscape garden patterns as to mark their bodies with curving lines, which were bounded on one side by hair, and on the other by the close plush left by the shears. They had all been newly barbered, and were exceedingly stylish. Several of the white ones were barred like zebras, with rainbow stripes of blue and red and yellow paint. These were indescribably gorgeous. Dan and Jack selected from this lot, because they brought back Italian reminiscences of the old masters. The saddles were the high, stuffy, frog-shaped things we had known in Ephesus and Smyrna. The donkey-boys were lively young Egyptian rascals who could follow a donkey and keep him in a canter half a day without tiring. We had plenty of spectators when we mounted, for the hotel was full of English people bound overland to India, and officers getting ready for the African campaign against the Abyssinian King Theodorus. We were not a very large party, but as we charged through the streets of the great metropolis we made noise for five hundred, and displayed activity and created excitement in proportion. Nobody can steer a donkey, 
and some collided with camels, dervishes, effendis, asses, beggars, and everything else that offered to the donkeys a reasonable chance for a collision. When we turned into the broad avenue that leads out of the city toward old Cairo, there was plenty of room. The walls of stately date-palms that fenced the gardens and bordered the way threw their shadows down and made the air cool and bracing. We rose to the spirit of the time, and the race became a wild rout, a stampede, a terrific panic. I wish to live to enjoy it again. Somewhere along this route we had a few startling exhibitions of oriental simplicity. A girl, apparently thirteen years of age, came along the great thoroughfare dressed like Eve before the fall. We would have called her thirteen at home, but here girls who look thirteen are often not more than nine in reality. Occasionally we saw stark-naked men of superb build bathing and making no attempt at concealment. However, an hour's acquaintance with this cheerful custom reconciled the pilgrims to it, and then it ceased to occasion remark. Thus easily do even the most startling novelties grow tame and spiritless to these sight-surfeited wanderers. Arrived at old Cairo, the camp-followers took up the donkeys and tumbled them bodily aboard a small boat with a lateen sail, and we followed and got under way. The deck was closely packed with donkeys and men. The two sailors had to climb over and under and through the wedged mass to work the sails and the steersman had to crowd four or five donkeys out of the way when he wished to swing his tiller and put his helm hard down. But what were their troubles to us? We had nothing to do, nothing to do but enjoy the trip, nothing to do but shove the donkeys off our corns and look at the charming scenery of the Nile. On the island at our right was the machine they call the Nilometer, a stone column whose business it is to mark the rise of the river and prophesy whether it will reach only thirty-two feet and produce a famine, or whether it will properly flood the land at forty and produce plenty, or whether it will rise to forty-three and bring death and destruction to flocks and crops. But how it does all this, they could not explain to us so that we could understand. On the same island is still shown the spot where Pharaoh's daughter found Moses in the bulrushes. Near the spot we sailed from, the Holy Family dwelt when they sojourned in Egypt, till Herod should complete his slaughter of the innocents. The same tree they rested under when they first arrived was there a short time ago, but the Viceroy of Egypt sent it to the Empress Eugenie lately. He was just in time, otherwise our pilgrims would have had it. The Nile at this point is muddy, swift, and turbid, and does not lack a great deal of being as wide as the Mississippi. We scrambled up the steep bank at the shabby town of Giza, mounted the donkeys again, and scampered away. For four or five miles the route lay along a high embankment which they say is to be the bed of a railway the Sultan means to build, for no other reason than that when the Empress of the French comes to visit him she can go to the pyramids in comfort. This is true Oriental hospitality. I am very glad it is our privilege to have donkeys instead of cars. At the distance of a few miles the pyramids rising above the palms looked very clean-cut, very grand and imposing, and very soft and filmy as well. They swam in a rich haze that took from them all suggestions of unfeeling stone, and made them seem only the airy nothings of a dream, structures which might blossom into tiers of vague arches or ornate colonnades, maybe and change, and change again, into all graceful forms of architecture, while we looked, and then melt deliciously away, and blend with the tremulous atmosphere. 
At the end of the levee we left the mules and went in a sailboat across an arm of the Nile, or an overflow, and landed where the sands of the Great Sahara left their embankment, as straight as a wall, along the verge of the alluvial plain of the river. A laborious walk in the flaming sun brought us to the foot of the great pyramid of Cheops. It was a fairy vision no longer. It was a corrugated, unsightly mountain of stone. Each of its monstrous sides was a wide stairway which rose upward, step above step, narrowing as it went, till it tapered to a point far aloft in the air. Insect men and women, pilgrims from the Quaker city, were creeping about its dizzy perches, and one little black swarm were waving postage stamps from the airy summit. Handkerchiefs will be understood. Of course, we were besieged by a rabble of muscular Egyptians and Arabs who wanted the contract of dragging us to the top, all tourists are. Of course, you could not hear your own voice for the din that was around you. Of course, the sheiks said they were the only responsible parties, that all contracts must be made with them, all monies paid over to them, and none exacted from us by any but themselves alone. Of course they contracted that the varlets who dragged us up should not mention bakshish once, for such is the usual routine. Of course we contracted with them, paid them, were delivered into the hands of the draggers, dragged up the pyramids, and harried and bedeviled for bakshish from the foundation clear to the summit. We paid it, too, for we were purposely spread very far apart over the vast side of the pyramid. There was no help near if we called, and the Herculeses who dragged us had a way of asking sweetly and flatteringly for bakshish, which was seductive, and of looking fierce and threatening to throw us down the precipice, which was persuasive and convincing. Each step being full as high as a dinner-table, there being very, very many of the steps, an Arab having hold of each of our arms, and springing upward from step to step, and snatching us with them, forcing us to lift our feet as high as our breasts every time, and do it rapidly, and keep it up till we were ready to faint, who shall say it is not lively, exhilarating, lacerating, muscle-straining, bone-wrenching, and perfectly excruciating and exhausting pastime climbing the pyramids? I beseech the varlets not to twist all my joints asunder. I iterated, reiterated, even swore to them that I did not wish to beat anybody to the top, did all I could to convince them that if I got there the last of all I would feel blessed above men and grateful to them for ever. I begged them, prayed them, pleaded with them to let me stop and rest a moment, only one little moment, and they only answered with some more frightful springs, and an unenlisted volunteer behind opened a bombardment of determined boosts with his head which threatened to batter my whole political economy to wreck and ruin. Twice for one minute they let me rest while they extorted bakshish, and then continued their maniac flight up the pyramid. They wished to beat the other parties. It was nothing to them that I, a stranger, must be sacrificed upon the altar of their unholy ambition. But in the midst of sorrow joy blooms. Even in this dark hour I had a sweet consolation, for I knew that except these Mohammedans repented, they would go straight to perdition some day, and they never repent they never forsake their paganism. This thought calmed me, cheered me, and I sank down, limp and exhausted, upon the summit, but happy, so happy and serene within. On the one hand a mighty sea of yellow sand stretched away toward the ends of the earth, solemn, silent, 
shorn of vegetation, its solitude uncheered by any forms of creature-life. On the other, the Eden of Egypt was spread below us, a broad green floor, cloven by the sinuous river, dotted with villages, its vast distances measured and marked by the diminishing stature of receding clusters of palms. It lay asleep in an enchanted atmosphere. There was no sound, no motion. Above the date-plumes in the middle distance swelled a domed and pinnacled mass, glimmering through a tinted, exquisite mist. Away toward the horizon a dozen shapely pyramids watched over ruined Memphis, and at our feet the bland, impassable Sphinx looked out upon the picture from her throne in the sands as placidly and pensively as she had looked upon its like full fifty lagging centuries ago. We suffered torture no pen can describe from the hungry appeals for bakshish that gleamed from Arab eyes and poured incessantly from Arab lips. Why try to call up the traditions of vanished Egyptian grandeur? Why try to fancy Egypt following dead Ramses to his tomb in the pyramid, or the long multitude of Israel departing over the desert yonder? Why try to think at all? The thing was impossible. One must bring his meditations cut and dried or else cut and dry them afterward. The traditional Arab proposed, in the traditional way, to run down Cheops, cross the eighth of a mile of sand intervening between it and the tall pyramid of Sephron, ascend to Sephron's summit, and return to us on the top of Cheops, all in nine minutes by the watch, and the whole service to be rendered for a single dollar. In the first flush of irritation I said, Let the Arab and his exploits go to the mischief. But stay! The upper third of Sephron was coated with dressed marble, smooth as glass. A blessed thought entered my brain. He must infallibly break his neck. Close the contract with dispatch, I said, and let him go. He started. We watched. He went bounding down the vast broadside spring after spring like an ibex. He grew small and smaller, till he became a bobbing pygmy, away down toward the bottom, then disappeared. We turned and peered over the other side, forty seconds, eighty seconds, a hundred. Happiness! He is dead already. Two minutes and a quarter. There he goes. Too true. It was too true. He was very small now. Gradually, but surely, he overcame the level ground. He began to spring and climb again. Up, up, up! At last he reached the smooth coating. Now for it! But he clung to it with toes and fingers like a fly. He crawled this way and that, away to the right, slanting upward, away to the left, still slanting upward, and stood, at last, a black peg on the summit, and waved his pygmy scarf. Then he crept downward to the raw steps again, then picked up his agile heels and flew. We lost him presently, but presently again we saw him under us, mounting with undiminished energy. Shortly he bounded into our midst with a gallant war-whoop. Time eight minutes, forty-one seconds. He had won. His bones were intact. It was a failure. I reflected. I said to myself, He is tired, and must grow dizzy. I will risk another dollar on him. He started again, made the trip again, slipped on the smooth coating. I almost had him. But an infamous crevice saved him. He was with us once more, perfectly sound. Time, eight minutes, forty-six seconds. I said to Dan, Lend me a dollar. I can beat this game yet. Worse and worse, he won again. Time, eight minutes, forty-eight seconds. I was out of all patience now. I was desperate. Money was no longer of any consequence. I said, 
Sirrah, I will give you a hundred dollars to jump off this pyramid head first. If you do not like the terms, name your bet. I scorn to stand on expenses now. I will stay right here and risk money on you as long as Dan has got a cent. I was in a fair way to win now, for it was a dazzling opportunity for an Arab. He pondered a moment, and would have done it, I think, but his mother arrived then and interfered. Her tears moved me. I never can look upon the tears of woman with indifference, and I said I would give her a hundred to jump off, too. But it was a failure. The Arabs are too high-priced in Egypt. They put on airs unbecoming to such savages. We descended, hot and out of humor. The dragoman lit the candles, and we all entered a hole near the base of the pyramid, attended by a crazy rabble of Arabs who thrust their services upon us uninvited. They dragged us up a long inclined chute, and dripped candle-grease all over us. This chute was not more than twice as wide and high as a Saratoga trunk, and was walled, roofed, and floored with solid blocks of Egyptian granite as wide as a wardrobe, twice as thick, and three times as long. We kept on climbing through the oppressive gloom, till I thought we ought to be nearing the top of the pyramid again, and then came to the Queen's Chamber, and shortly to the Chamber of the King. These large apartments were tombs. The walls were built of monstrous masses of smooth granite, neatly joined together. Some of them were nearly as large square as an ordinary parlor. A great stone sarcophagus like a bathtub stood in the center of the King's Chamber. Around it were gathered a picturesque group of Arab savages and soiled and tattered pilgrims, who held their candles aloft in the gloom while they chattered, and the winking blurs of light shed a dim glory down upon one of the irrepressible memento-seekers who was pecking at the venerable sarcophagus with his sacrilegious hammer. We struggled out to the open air and the bright sunshine, and for the space of thirty minutes received ragged Arabs by couples, dozens, and platoons, and paid them bakshish for services they swore and proved by each other that they had rendered, but which we had not been aware of before, and as each party was paid they dropped into the rear of the procession, and in due time arrived again with a newly invented delinquent list for liquidation. We lunched in the shade of the pyramid, and in the midst of this encroaching and unwelcome company, and then Dan and Jack and I started away for a walk. A howling swarm of beggars followed us, surrounded us, almost headed us off. A sheik, in flowing white burnous and gaudy headgear, was with them. He wanted more bakshish. But we had adopted a new code. It was millions for defense, but not a cent for bakshish. I asked him if he could persuade the others to depart if we paid him. He said, yes, for ten francs. We accepted the contract, and said, now, persuade your vassals to fall back. He swung his long staff around his head, and three Arabs bit the dust. He capered among the mob like a very maniac. His blows fell like hail, and wherever one fell a subject went down. We had to hurry to the rescue and tell him it was only necessary to damage them a little. He need not kill them. In two minutes we were alone with the sheik, and remained so. The persuasive powers of this illiterate savage were remarkable. Each side of the pyramid of Cheops is about as long as the capital at Washington, or the Sultan's new palace on the Bosporus, and is longer than the greatest depth of St. Peter's at Rome, which is to say that each side of Cheops extends seven hundred and some odd feet. It is about seventy-five feet higher than the cross of St. Peter's. The first time I ever went down the Mississippi I thought the highest bluff on the river between St. Louis and the New Orleans, 
it was near Selma, Missouri, was probably the highest mountain in the world. It is four hundred and thirteen feet high. It still looms in my memory with undiminished grandeur. I can still see the trees and bushes growing smaller and smaller as I followed them up its huge slant with my eye, till they became a feathery fringe on the distant summit. This symmetrical pyramid of Cheops, this solid mountain of stone reared by the patient hands of men, this mighty tomb of a forgotten monarch, dwarfs my cherished mountain, for it is four hundred and eighty feet high. In still earlier years than those I have been recalling, Holiday's Hill, in our town, was to me the noblest work of God. It appeared to pierce the skies. It was nearly three hundred feet high. In those days I pondered the subject much, but I never could understand why it did not swathe its summit with never-failing clouds, and crown its majestic brow with everlasting snows. I had heard that such was the custom of great mountains in other parts of the world. I remembered how I worked with another boy at odd afternoons stolen from study, and paid for with stripes, to undermine and start from its bed an immense boulder that rested upon the edge of that hilltop. I remembered now, one Saturday afternoon, we gave three hours of honest effort to the task, and saw at last that our reward was at hand. I remembered how we sat down then, and wiped the perspiration away, and waited to let a picnic party get out of the way in the road below, and then we started the boulder. It was splendid. It went crashing down the hillside, tearing up saplings, mowing bushes down like grass, ripping and crushing and smashing everything in its path, eternally splintered and scattered a woodpile at the foot of the hill, and then sprang from the high bank clear over a dray in the road. The negro glanced up once and dodged, and the next second it made infinitesimal mincemeat of a frame cooper shop, and the coopers swarmed out like bees. Then we said it was perfectly magnificent, and left because the coopers were starting up the hill to inquire. Still, that mountain, prodigious as it was, was nothing to the pyramid of Cheops. I could conjure up no comparison that would convey to my mind a satisfactory comprehension of the magnitude of a pile of monstrous stones that covered thirteen acres of ground, and stretched upward four hundred and eighty tiresome feet, and so I gave it up and walked down to the Sphinx. After years of waiting, it was before me at last. The great face was so sad, so earnest, so longing, so patient. There was a dignity not of the earth in its mien, and in its countenance a benignity such as never any human wore. It was stone, but it seemed sentient. If ever image of stone thought, it was thinking. It was looking toward the verge of the landscape, yet looking at nothing, nothing but distance and vacancy. It was looking over and beyond everything of the present, and far into the past. It was gazing out over the ocean of time, over lines of century waves, which, further and further receding, closed nearer and nearer together, and blended at last into one unbroken tide, away toward the horizon of remote antiquity. It was thinking of the wars of departed ages, of the empires it had seen created and destroyed, of the nations whose birth it had witnessed whose progress it had watched, whose annihilation it had noted, of the joy and sorrow, the life and death, the grandeur and decay, of five thousand slow revolving years. It was the type of an attribute of man, of a faculty, of his heart and brain. It was memory, retrospection, wrought into visible, tangible form. 
all who know what pathos there is in memories of days that are accomplished and faces that have vanished, albeit only a trifling score of years gone by, will have some appreciation of the pathos that dwells in these grave eyes that look so steadfastly back upon the things they knew before history was born, before tradition had being, things that were and forms that moved in a vague era which even poetry and romance scarce know of, and passed one by one away, and left the stony dreamer solitary in the midst of a strange new age and uncomprehended scenes. The Sphinx is grand in its loneliness, it is imposing in its magnitude, it is impressive in the mystery that hangs over its story. And there is that in the overshadowing majesty of this eternal figure of stone, with its accusing memory of the deeds of all ages, which reveals to one something of what he shall feel when he shall stand at last in the awful presence of God. There are some things which, for the credit of America, should be left unsaid, perhaps, but these very things happen sometimes to be the very things which, for the real benefit of Americans, ought to have prominent notice. While we stood looking, a wart, or an excrescence of some kind, appeared on the jaw of the Sphinx. We heard the familiar clink of a hammer, and understood the case at once. One of our well-meaning reptiles—I mean relic-hunters—had crawled up there, and was trying to break a specimen from the face of this, the most majestic creation the hand of man has wrought. But the great image contemplated the dead ages as calmly as ever, unconscious of the small insect that was fretting at its jaw. Egyptian granite that has defied the storms and earthquakes of all time has nothing to fear from the tack-hammers of ignorant excursionists, highwaymen like this specimen. He failed in his enterprise. We sent a sheik to arrest him, if he had the authority, or to warn him, if he had not that by the laws of Egypt the crime he was attempting to commit was punishable with imprisonment or the bastinado. Then he desisted and went away. The Sphinx, a hundred and twenty-five feet long, sixty feet high, and a hundred and two feet around the head, if I remember rightly, carved out of one solid block of stone harder than any iron. The block must have been as large as the Fifth Avenue Hotel before the usual waste, by the necessities of sculpture, of a fourth or a half of the original mass was begun. I only set down these figures and these remarks to suggest the prodigious labor the carving of it so elegantly, so symmetrically, so faultlessly must have cost. This species of stone is so hard that figures cut in it remain sharp and unmarred after exposure to the weather for two or three thousand years. Now did it take a hundred years of patient toil to carve the Sphinx? Seems probable. Something interfered, and we did not visit the Red Sea and walk upon the sands of Arabia. I shall not describe the great mosque of Mehemet Ali, whose entire inner walls are built of polished and glistening alabaster. I shall not tell how the little birds have built their nests in the globes of the great chandeliers that hang in the mosque, and how they fill the whole place with their music, and are not afraid of anybody because their audacity is pardoned, their rights are respected, and nobody is allowed to interfere with them even though the mosque be thus doomed to go unlighted. I certainly shall not tell the hackneyed story of the massacre of the Mamelukes, because I am glad the lawless rascals were massacred, and I do not wish to get up any sympathy in their behalf. I shall not tell how that one solitary Mameluke jumped his horse a hundred feet down from the battlements of the citadel and escaped, because I do not think much of that. I could have done it myself. 
I shall not tell of Joseph's well which he dug in the solid rock of the Citadel Hill, and which is still as good as new, nor how the same mules he bought to draw up the water, with an endless chain, are still at it yet, and are getting tired of it, too. I shall not tell about Joseph's granaries, which he built to store the grain in, what time the Egyptian brokers were selling short, unwitting that there would be no corn in all the land when it should be time for them to deliver. I shall not tell anything about the strange, strange city of Cairo, because it is only a repetition, a good deal intensified and exaggerated, of the oriental cities I have already spoken of. I shall not tell of the great caravan which leaves for Mecca every year, for I did not see it, nor of the fashion the people have of prostrating themselves, and so forming a long human pavement to be ridden over by the chief of the expedition on its return, to the end that their salvation may be thus secured, for I did not see that either. I shall not speak of the railway, for it is like any other railway. I shall only say that the fuel they use for the locomotive is composed of mummies three thousand years old, purchased by the ton or by the graveyard for that purpose, and that sometimes one hears the profane engineer call out pettishly, "'Damn these plebeians! They don't burn worth a cent! Pass out a king!' Stated to me for a fact, I only tell it as I got it. I am willing to believe it. I can believe anything. I shall not tell of the groups of mud-cones stuck like wasps' nests upon a thousand mounds above high water-mark the length and breadth of Egypt, villages of the lower classes. I shall not speak of the boundless sweep of level plain, green with luxuriant grain, that gladdens the eye as far as it can pierce through the soft, rich atmosphere of Egypt. I shall not speak of the vision of the pyramid seen at a distance of five and twenty miles, for the picture is too ethereal to be limbed by uninspired pen. I shall not tell of the crowds of dusky women who flock to the cars, when they stopped a moment at a station, to sell us a drink of water, or a ruddy, juicy pomegranate. I shall not tell of the motley multitudes and wild costumes that graced a fair we found in full blast at another barbarous station. I shall not tell how we feasted on fresh dates, and enjoyed the pleasant landscape all through the flying journey, nor how we thundered into Alexandria at last, swarmed out of the cars, rode aboard the ship, left a comrade behind, who was to return to Europe thence home, raised the anchor, and turned our bows homeward finally and forever from the long voyage. Nor how, as the mellow sun went down upon the oldest land on earth, Jack and Moult assembled in solemn state in the smoking-room, and mourned over the lost comrade the whole night long, and would not be comforted. I shall not speak a word of any of these things, or write a line. They shall be as a sealed book. I do not know what a sealed book is, because I never saw one. But a sealed book is the expression to use in this connection, because it is popular. We were glad to have seen the land which was the mother of civilization, which taught Greece her letters, and through Greece Rome, and through Rome the world, the land which could have humanized and civilized the hapless children of Israel, but allowed them to depart out of her borders little better than savages. We were glad to have seen that land which had an enlightened religion with future eternal rewards and punishment in it while even Israel's religion contained no promise of a hereafter. We were glad to have seen that land which had glass three thousand years before England had it, and could paint upon it as none of us can paint now. 
that land which knew, three thousand years ago, well-nigh all of medicine and surgery which science has discovered lately, which had all those curious surgical instruments which science has invented recently, which had in high excellence a thousand luxuries and necessities of an advanced civilization which we have gradually contrived and accumulated in modern times, and claimed as things that were new under the sun, that had paper untold centuries before we dreamt of it, and waterfalls before our women thought of them, that had a perfect system of common schools so long before we boasted of our achievements in that direction, that it seems forever and forever ago, that so embalmed the dead that flesh was made almost immortal, which we cannot do, that built temples which mock at destroying time, and smile grimly upon our lauded little prodigies of architecture, that old land that knew all which we know now, perchance, and more, that walked in the broad highway of civilization in the gray dawn of creation, ages and ages before we were born, that left the impress of exalted, cultivated mind upon the eternal front of the Sphinx, to confound all scoffers who, when all her other proofs had passed away, might seek to persuade the world that imperial Egypt, in the days of her high renown, had groped in darkness. End of chapter 58 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain, Chapter Fifty Nine, Going Home, A Demoralized Notebook, A Boy's Diary, Mere Mention of Old Spain, Departure from Cadiz, A Deserved Rebuke, The Beautiful Madeiras, Tabooed, In the Delightful Bermudas, An English Welcome, Goodbye to Our Friends the Bermudians, Packing Trunks for Home, Our First Accident. The long cruise drawing to a close. At home. Amen. We were at sea now, for a very long voyage. We were to pass through the entire length of the Levant, through the entire length of the Mediterranean proper also, and then cross the full width of the Atlantic, a voyage of several weeks. We naturally settled down into a very slow, stay-at-home manner of life, and resolved to be quiet, exemplary people and roam no more for twenty or thirty days, no more, at least, than from the stem to stern of the ship. It was a very comfortable prospect, though, for we were tired, and needed a long rest. We were all lazy and satisfied now, as the meagre entries in my notebook, that sure index to me of my condition, prove. What a stupid thing a notebook gets to be at sea, anyway! Please observe the style. Sunday. Services, as usual, at four bells. Services at night, also. No cards. Monday, beautiful day, but rained hard. The cattle purchased at Alexandria for beef ought to be shingled, or else fattened. The water stands in deep puddles in the depressions forward of their after-shoulders, also here and there, all over their backs. It is well they are not cows. It would soak in and ruin the milk. The poor devil eagle afterwards presented to the central park, from Syria looks miserable and droopy in the rain, perched on the forward capstan. He appears to have his own opinion of a sea voyage, and if it were put into language and the language solidified, it would probably essentially damn the widest river in the world. 
Tuesday, somewhere in the neighborhood of the island of Malta. Cannot stop there. Cholera. Weather very stormy. Many passengers seasick and invisible. Wednesday, weather still very savage. Storm blew two land birds to sea, and they came on board. A hawk was blown off also. He circled round and round the ship, wanting to light, but afraid of the people. He was so tired, though, that he had to light at last, or perish. He stopped in the foretop, repeatedly, and was as often blown away by the wind. At last Harry caught him. Sea full of flying fish. They rise in flocks of three hundred, and flash along above the tops of the waves a distance of two or three hundred feet, then fall and disappear. Thursday anchored off Algiers, Africa. Beautiful city, beautiful green hilly landscape behind it. Stayed half a day, and left. Not permitted to land, though we showed a clean bill of health. They were afraid of Egyptian plague and cholera. Friday morning dominoes, afternoon dominoes, evening promenading the deck. Afterwards charades. Saturday morning dominoes, afternoon dominoes, evening promenading the decks. Afterwards dominoes. Sunday morning service four bells, evening service eight bells, monotony till midnight, whereupon dominoes. Monday morning dominoes, afternoon dominoes, evening promenading the decks. Afterward, charades and a lecture from Dr. C. Dominoes. No date. Anchored off the picturesque city of Cagliari, Sardinia. Stayed till midnight, but not permitted to land by these infamous foreigners. They smell inodorously. They do not wash. They dare not risk cholera. Thursday anchored off the beautiful cathedral city of Malaga, Spain. Went ashore in the captain's boat. Not ashore, either, for they would not let us land. Quarantine. Shipped my newspaper correspondence, which they took with tongs, dipped it in sea-water, clipped it full of holes, and then fumigated it with villainous vapors till it smelt like a Spaniard. Inquired about chances to run to blockade and visit the Alhambra at Granada. Too risky. They might hang a body. Set sail, middle of afternoon and so on, and so on, and so forth, for several days, finally anchored off Gibraltar, which looks familiar and homelike. It reminds me of the journal I opened with the New Year once, when I was a boy, and a confiding and a willing prey to those impossible schemes of reform which well-meaning old maids and grandmothers set for the feet of unwary youths at that season of the year, setting oversized tasks for them, which— necessarily failing, as infailingly weaken the boy's strength of will, diminish his confidence in himself, and injure his chances of success in life. Please accept of an extract. Monday. Got up, washed, went to bed. Tuesday. Got up, washed, went to bed. Wednesday. Got up, washed, went to bed. Thursday. Got up, washed, went to bed. Friday. Got up, washed, went to bed. Next Friday. Got up, washed, went to bed. Friday fortnight. Got up, washed, went to bed. Following month. Got up, washed, went to bed. I stopped, then, discouraged. Startling events appeared to be too rare in my career to render a diary necessary. I still reflect with pride, however, that even at that early age I washed when I got up. That journal finished me. 
I never have had the nerve to keep one since. My loss of confidence in myself in that line was permanent. The ship had to stay a week or more at Gibraltar to take in coal for the home voyage. It would be very tiresome staying here, and so four of us ran the quarantine blockade, and spent seven delightful days in Seville, Cordova, Cadiz, and wandering through the pleasant rural scenery of Andalusia, the garden of old Spain. The experiences of that cheery week were too varied and numerous for a short chapter, and I have not room for a long one. Therefore, I shall leave them all out. End of chapter 59 Chapter 60 Thankless Devotion A Newspaper Valedictory Conclusion Ten or eleven o'clock found us coming down to breakfast one morning in Cadiz. They told us the ship had been lying at anchor in the harbor two or three hours. It was time for us to bestir ourselves. The ship could wait only a little while because of the quarantine. We were soon on board, and within the hour the white city and the pleasant shores of Spain sank down behind the waves and passed out of sight. We had seen no land fade from view so regretfully. It had long ago been decided in a noisy public meeting in the main cabin that we could not go to Lisbon, because we must surely be quarantined there. We did everything by mass meeting, in the good old national way, from swapping off one empire for another on the program of the voyage, down to complaining of the cookery and the scarcity of napkins. I am reminded now of one of these complaints of the cookery made by a passenger. The coffee had been steadily growing more and more execrable for the space of three weeks, till at last it had ceased to be coffee altogether, and had assumed the nature of mere discolored water, so this person said. He said it was so weak that it was transparent, an inch in depth around the edge of the cup. As he approached the table one morning, he saw the transparent edge, by means of his extraordinary vision, long before he got to his seat. He went back and complained in a high-handed way to Captain Duncan. He said the coffee was disgraceful. The captain showed his. It seemed tolerably good. The incipient mutineer was more outraged than ever, then, at what he denounced as the partiality shown the captain's table over the other tables in the ship. He flourished back, and got his cup, and set it down triumphantly, and said, "'Just try that mixture once, Captain Duncan.' He smelt it, tasted it, smiled benignantly, then said, it is inferior, for coffee, but it is pretty fair tea." The humbled mutineer smelt it, tasted it, and returned to his seat. He had made an egregious ass of himself before the whole ship. He did it no more. After that he took things as they came. That was me. The old-fashioned ship-life had returned, now that we were no longer in sight of land. For days and days it continued just the same, one day being exactly like another, and, to me, every one of them pleasant. At last we anchored in the open roadstead of Funchal, in the beautiful islands we call the Madeiras. The mountains looked surpassingly lovely, clad as they were in living green, ribbed with lava ridges, flecked with white cottages, riven by deep chasms purple with shade. The great slopes dashed with sunshine, and mottled with shadows, flung from the drifting squadrons of the sky, and the superb picture fitly crowned by towering peaks whose fronts were swept by the trailing fringes of the clouds. But we could not land. We stayed all day and looked. We abused the man who invented quarantine. 
we held half a dozen mass meetings and crammed them full of interrupted speeches, motions that fell stillborn, amendments that came to naught, and resolutions that died from sheer exhaustion in trying to get before the house. At night we set sail. We averaged four mass meetings a week for the voyage. We seemed always in labor in this way, and yet so often fallaciously that whenever at long intervals we were safely delivered of a resolution, it was cause for public rejoicing, and we hoisted the flag and fired a salute. Days passed, and nights, and then the beautiful Bermudas rose out of the sea. We entered the tortuous channel, steamed hither and thither among the bright summer islands, and rested at last under the flag of England, and were welcome. We were not a nightmare here, where were civilization and intelligence in place of Spanish and Italian superstition, dirt, and dread of cholera. A few days among the breezy groves, the flower-gardens, the coral caves, and the lovely vistas of blue water that went curving in and out, disappearing and anon again appearing through jungle walls of brilliant foliage, restored the energies dulled by long drowsing on the ocean, and fitted us for our final cruise, our little run of a thousand miles to New York, America, home. We bade good-bye to our friends the Bermudians, as our program hath it. The majority of those we were most intimate with were Negroes, and courted the great deep again. I said the majority. We knew more Negroes than white people, because we had a deal of washing to be done. But we made some most excellent friends among the whites, whom it will be a pleasant duty to hold long in grateful remembrance. We sailed, and from that hour all idling ceased. Such another system of overhauling, general littering of cabins, and packing of trunks we had not seen since we let go the anchor in the harbor of Beirut. Everybody was busy. Lists of all purchases had to be made out, and values attached, to facilitate matters at the custom-house. Purchases bought by bulk in partnership had to be equitably divided, outstanding debts cancelled, accounts compared, and trunks, boxes, and packages labeled. All day long the bustle and confusion continued, and now came our first accident. A passenger was running through a gangway, between decks, one stormy night, when he caught his foot in the iron staple of a door that had been heedlessly left off a hatchway, and the bones of his right leg broke at the ankle. It was our first serious misfortune. We had travelled much more than twenty thousand miles by land and sea, in many trying climates, without a single hurt, without a serious case of sickness, and without a death among five and sixty passengers. Our good fortune had been wonderful. A sailor had jumped overboard at Constantinople one night, and was seen no more, but it was suspected that his object was to desert, and there was a slim chance, at least, that he reached the shore. But the passenger list was complete. There was no name missing from the register. At last, one pleasant morning, we steamed up the harbor of New York, all on deck, all dressed in Christian garb, by special order, for there was a latent disposition in some quarters to come out as Turks, and amid a waving of handkerchiefs from welcoming friends, the glad pilgrims noted the shiver of the decks that told that ship and pier had joined hands again, and the long, strange cruise was over. Amen. End of chapter 60This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 61. 
In this place I will print an article which I wrote for the New York Herald the night we arrived. I do it partly because my contract with my publishers makes it compulsory, partly because it is a proper, tolerably accurate, and exhaustive summing up of the crews of the ship and the performances of the pilgrims in foreign lands, and partly because some of the passengers have abused me for writing it, and I wish the public to see how thankless a task it is to put one's self to trouble to glorify unappreciative people. I was charged with rushing into print with these compliments. I did not rush. I had written news-letters to the Herald sometimes, but yet when I visited the office that day I did not say anything about writing a valedictory. I did go to the Tribune office to see if such an article was wanted, because I belonged on the regular staff of that paper, and it was simply a duty to do it. The managing editor was absent, and so I thought no more about it. At night, when the Herald's request came for an article, I did not rush. In fact, I demurred for a while, because I did not feel like writing compliments then, and therefore was afraid to speak of the cruise, lest I might be betrayed into using other than complimentary language. However, I reflected that it would be a just and righteous thing to go down and write a kind word for the Hajis. Hajis are people who have made the pilgrimage, because parties not interested could not do it so feelingly as I, a fellow Haji, and so I penned the valedictory. I have read it, and read it again, and if there is a sentence in it that is not fulsomely complimentary to captain, ship, and passengers, I cannot find it. If it is not a chapter that any company might be proud to have a body write about them, my judgment is fit for nothing. With these remarks I confidently submit it to the unprejudiced judgment of the reader. RETURN OF THE HOLY LAND EXCURSIONISTS THE STORY OF THE CRUISE to the editor of the Herald. The steamer Quaker City has accomplished at last her extraordinary voyage, and returned to her old pier at the foot of Wall Street. The expedition was a success in some respects, in some it was not. Originally it was advertised as a pleasure excursion. Well, perhaps it was a pleasure excursion, but certainly it did not look like one. Certainly it did not act like one. Anybody's and everybody's notion of a pleasure excursion is that the parties to it will of a necessity be young and giddy and somewhat boisterous. They will dance a good deal, sing a good deal, make love, but sermonize very little. Anybody's and everybody's notion of a well-conducted funeral is that there must be a hearse and a corpse, and chief mourners, and mourners by courtesy, many old people, much solemnity, no levity, and a prayer and a sermon withal. Three-fourths of the Quaker City's passengers were between forty and seventy years of age. There was a picnic crowd for you. It may be supposed that the other fourth was composed of young girls, but it was not. It was chiefly composed of rusty old bachelors and a child of six years. Let us average the ages of the Quaker City's pilgrims, and set the figure down as fifty years. Is any man insane enough to imagine that this picnic of patriarchs sang, made love, danced, laughed, told anecdotes, dealt in ungodly levity? In my experience they sinned little in these matters. No doubt it was presumed here at home that these frolicsome veterans laughed and sang and romped all day and day after day, and kept up a noisy excitement from one end of the ship to the other, 
and that they played blind man's buff, or danced quadrilles and waltzes on moonlight evenings on the quarter-deck, and that at odd moments of unoccupied time they jotted a laconic item or two in the journals they opened on such an elaborate plan when they left home, and then scurried off to their whist and euchre labors under the cabin lamps. If these things were presumed, the presumption was at fault. The venerable excursionists were not gay and frisky. They played no blind man's buff. They dealt not in whist. They shirked not the irksome journal, for, alas, most of them were even writing books. They never romped, they talked but little, they never sang, save in the nightly prayer-meeting. The pleasure-ship was a synagogue, and the pleasure-trip was a funeral excursion without a corpse. There is nothing exhilarating about a funeral excursion without a corpse. A free, hearty laugh was a sound that was not heard oftener than once in seven days about those decks, or in those cabins, and when it was heard it met with precious little sympathy. The excursions danced on three separate evenings, long, long ago, it seems an age, quadrilles of a single set made up of three ladies and five gentlemen, the latter with handkerchiefs round their arms to signify their sex, who timed their feet to the solemn wheezing of a melodeon. But even this melancholy orgy was voted to be sinful, and dancing was discontinued. The pilgrims played dominoes when too much Josephus or Robinson's Holy Land researches or book-writing made recreation necessary, for dominoes is about as mild and sinless a game as any in the world, perhaps, excepting always the ineffably insipid diversion they call croquet which is a game where you don't pocket any balls, and don't caram on anything of any consequence, and when you are done nobody has to pay, and there are no refreshments to saw off, and consequently there isn't any satisfaction whatever about it. They played dominoes till they were rested, and then they blackguarded each other privately till prayer-time. When they were not seasick they were uncommonly prompt when the dinner-gong sounded. Such was our daily life on board the ship, solemnity, decorum, dinner, dominoes, devotions, slander. It was not lively enough for a pleasure-trip, but if we had only had a corpse it would have made a noble funeral excursion. It is all over now, but when I look back the idea of these venerable fossils skipping forth on a six-months picnic seems exquisitely refreshing. The advertised title of the expedition, The Grand Holy Land Pleasure Excursion, was a misnomer. The grand Holy Land funeral procession would have been better, much better. Wherever we went, in Europe, Asia, or Africa, we made a sensation, and, I suppose I may add, created a famine. None of us had ever been anywhere before. We all hailed from the interior. Travel was a wild novelty to us, and we conducted ourselves in accordance with the natural instincts that were in us, and trammeled ourselves with no ceremonies, no conventionalities. We always took care to make it understood that we were Americans, Americans. When we found that a good many foreigners had hardly ever heard of America, and that a good many more knew it only as a barbarous province away off somewhere, that had lately been at war with somebody, we pitied the ignorance of the old world, but abated no jot of our importance. Many and many a simple community in the Eastern Hemisphere will remember for years the incursion of the strange horde in the year of our Lord, 1867, that called themselves Americans, and seemed to imagine in some unaccountable way that they had a right to be proud of it. 
we generally created a famine, partly because the coffee on the Quaker City was unendurable, and sometimes the more substantial fare was not strictly first class, and partly because one naturally tires of sitting long at the same board and eating from the same dishes. The people of those foreign countries are very, very ignorant. They looked curiously at the costumes we had brought from the wilds of America. They observed that we talked loudly at table sometimes. They noticed that we looked out for expenses, and got what we conveniently could out of a franc, and wondered where in the mischief we came from. In Paris they just simply opened their eyes and stared when we spoke to them in French. We never did succeed in making those idiots understand their own language. One of our passengers said to a shopkeeper, in reference to a proposed return to buy a pair of gloves, Allons, restez tranquille, may be vi comme and would you believe it, that shopkeeper, a born Frenchman, had to ask what it was that had been said. Sometimes it seems to me, somehow, that there must be a difference between Parisian French and Quaker City French. The people stared at us everywhere, and we stared at them. We generally made them feel rather small, too, before we got done with them, because we bore down on them with America's greatness until we crushed them. And yet we took kindly to the manners and customs, and especially to the fashions of the various people we visited. When we left the Azores we wore awful capotes, and used fine-tooth combs successfully. When we came back from Tangier in Africa we were topped with fezes of the bloodiest hue, hung with tassels like an Indian's scalp-lock. In France and Spain we attracted some attention in these costumes. In Italy they naturally took us for distempered Garibaldians, and set a gunboat to look for anything significant in our changes of uniform. We made Rome howl. We could have made any place howl when we had all our clothes on. We got no fresh raiment in Greece. They had but little there of any kind. But at Constantinople how we turned out! Turbans, scimitars, fezes, horse-pistols, tunics, sashes, baggy trousers, yellow slippers. Oh, we were gorgeous! The illustrious dogs of Constantinople barked their under-jaws off, and even then failed to do us justice. They are all dead by this time. They could not go through such a run of business as we gave them and survive. And then we went to see the Emperor of Russia. We just called on him as comfortably as if we had known him a century or so, and when we had finished our visit we variegated ourselves with selections from Russian costumes, and sailed away again more picturesque than ever. In Smyrna we picked up camel's hair shawls and other dressy things from Persia, but in Palestine—ah, in Palestine—our splendid career ended. They didn't wear any clothes there to speak of. We were satisfied, and stopped. We made no experiments. We did not try their costume. But we astonished the natives of that country. We astonished them with such eccentricities of dress as we could muster. We prowled through the Holy Land, from Caesarea Philippi to Jerusalem and the Dead Sea, a weird procession of pilgrims, gotten up regardless of expense, solemn, gorgeous, green-bespeckled, drowsing under blue umbrellas, and astride of a sorrier lot of horses, camels, and asses than those that came out of Noah's Ark after eleven months of seasickness and short rations. If ever those children of Israel in Palestine forget when Gideon's band went through there from America, they ought to be cursed once more and finished. It was the rarest spectacle that ever astounded mortal eyes, perhaps. Well, we were at home in Palestine. 
it was easy to see that that was the grand feature of the expedition. We had cared nothing much about Europe. We galloped through the Louvre, the Pitti, the Uffizi, the Vatican, all the galleries, and through the pictured and frescoed churches of Venice, Naples, and the cathedrals of Spain. Some of us said that certain of the great works of the old masters were glorious creations of genius. We found it out in the guide-book, though we got hold of the wrong picture sometimes. And the others said they were disgraceful old daubs. We examined modern and ancient statuary with a critical eye in Florence, Rome, or anywhere we found it, and praised it if we saw fit, and if we didn't we said we preferred the wooden Indians in front of the cigar-stores of America. But the Holy Land brought out all our enthusiasm. We fell into raptures by the barren shores of Galilee. We pondered at Tabor and at Nazareth. We exploded into poetry over the questionable loveliness of Esdraelon. We meditated at Jezreel and Samaria over the missionary zeal of Jehu. We rioted, fairly rioted, among the holy places of Jerusalem. We bathed in Jordan and the Dead Sea, reckless whether our accident insurance policies were extra-hazardous or not, and brought away so many jugs of precious water from both places that all the country from Jericho to the mountains of Moab will suffer from drought this year, I think. Yet the pilgrimage part of the excursion was its pet feature. There is no question about that. After dismal, smileless Palestine, beautiful Egypt had few charms for us. We merely glanced at it, and were ready for home. They wouldn't let us land at Malta, quarantine. They would not let us land in Sardinia, nor at Algiers, Africa, nor at Malaga, Spain, nor Cadiz, nor at the Madeira Islands. So we got offended at all foreigners, and turned our backs upon them, and came home. I suppose we only stopped at the Bermudas because they were in the program. We did not care anything about any place at all. We wanted to go home. Homesickness was abroad in the ship. It was epidemic. If the authorities of New York had known how badly we had it, they would have quarantined us here. The grand pilgrimage is over. Good-bye to it, and a pleasant memory to it, I am able to say in all kindness. I bear no malice, no ill-will toward any individual that was connected with it, either as passenger or officer. Things I did not like at all yesterday, I like very well to-day, now that I am at home, and always hereafter I shall be able to poke fun at the whole gang, if the spirit so moves me to do, without ever saying a malicious word. The expedition accomplished all that its program promised that it should accomplish, and we ought all to be satisfied with the management of the matter, certainly. Bye-bye. Mark Twain. I call that complimentary. It is complimentary, and yet I never have received a word of thanks for it from the Hajis. On the contrary, I speak nothing but the serious truth when I say that many of them even took exceptions to the article. In endeavoring to please them, I slaved over that sketch for two hours, and had my labor for my pains. I never will do a generous deed again. CONCLUSION Nearly one year has flown since this notable pilgrimage was ended, and as I sit here at home in San Francisco, thinking, I am moved to confess that day by day the mass of my memories of the excursion have grown more and more pleasant, as the disagreeable incidents of travel which encumbered them flitted one by one out of my mind. And now, if the Quaker City were weighing her anchor to sail away on the very same cruise again, nothing could gratify me more than to be a passenger. 
with the same captain, and even the same pilgrims, the same sinners. I was on excellent terms with eight or nine of the excursionists, they are my staunch friends yet, and was even on speaking terms with the rest of the sixty-five. I have been at sea quite enough to know that that was a very good average, because a long sea-voyage not only brings out all the mean traits one has, and exaggerates them, but raises up others which he never suspected he possessed, and even creates new ones. A twelve-months voyage at sea would make of an ordinary man a very miracle of meanness. On the other hand, if a man has good qualities, the spirit seldom moves him to exhibit them on shipboard, at least with any sort of emphasis. Now, I am satisfied that our pilgrims are pleasant old people on shore. I am also satisfied that at sea, on a second voyage, they would be pleasanter, somewhat, than they were on our grand excursion. And so I say, without hesitation, that I would be glad enough to sail with them again. I could at least enjoy life with my handful of old friends. They could enjoy life with their cliques as well. Passengers invariably divide up into cliques on all ships. And I will say here, that I would rather travel with an excursion party of Methuselahs than have to be changing ships and comrades constantly, as people do who travel in the ordinary way. Those latter are always grieving over some other ship they have known and lost, and over other comrades whom diverging routes have separated from them. They learn to love a ship just in time to change it for another, and they become attached to a pleasant travelling companion only to lose him. They have that most dismal experience of being in a strange vessel, among strange people, who care nothing about them, and of undergoing the customary bullying by strange officers, and the insolence of strange servants, repeated over and over again, within the compass of every month. They have also that other misery of packing and unpacking trunks, of running the distressing gauntlet of custom-houses, of the anxieties attendant upon getting a mass of baggage from point to point on land in safety. I had rather sail with a whole brigade of patriarchs than suffer so. We never packed our trunks but twice, when we sailed from New York, and when we returned to it. Whenever we made a land jury, we estimated how many days we should be gone, and what amount of clothing we should need, figured it down to a mathematical nicety, packed a valise or two accordingly, and left the trunks on board. We chose our comrades from among our old tried friends, and started. We were never dependent upon strangers for companionship. We often had occasion to pity Americans whom we found travelling drearily among strangers, with no friends to exchange pains and pleasures with. Whenever we were coming back from a land journey, our eyes sought one thing in the distance first—the ship. And when we saw it riding at anchor with a flag apeak, we felt as a returning wanderer feels when he sees his home. When we stepped on board, our cares vanished, our troubles were at an end, for the ship was home to us. We always had the same familiar old stateroom to go to, and feel safe, and at peace, and comfortable again. I have no fault to find with the manner in which our excursion was conducted. Its program was faithfully carried out, a thing which surprised me, for great enterprises usually promise vastly more than they perform. It would be well if such an excursion could be gotten up every year, and the system regularly inaugurated. Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. 
The excursion is ended, and has passed to its place among the things that were. But its varied scenes and its manifold incidents will linger pleasantly in our memories for many a year to come. Always on the wing, as we were, and merely pausing a moment to catch fitful glimpses of the wonders of half a world, we could not hope to receive or retain vivid impressions of all it was our fortune to see. Yet our holiday flight has not been in vain, for, above the confusion of vague recollections, certain of its best-prized pictures lift themselves, and will still continue perfect in tint and outline after their surroundings shall have faded away. We shall remember something of pleasant France, and something also of Paris. Though it flashed upon us a splendid meteor and was gone again, we hardly knew how or where. We shall remember always how we saw majestic Gibraltar glorified with the rich colouring of a Spanish sunset, and swimming in a sea of rainbows. In fancy we shall see Milan again, and her stately cathedral with its marble wilderness of graceful spires, and Padua, Verona, Como, jewelled with stars, and patrician Venice afloat on her stagnant flood, silent, desolate, haughty, scornful of her humbled state wrapping herself in memories of her lost fleets, of battles and triumph, and all the pageantry of a glory that is departed. We cannot forget Florence, Naples, nor the foretaste of heaven that is the delicious atmosphere of Greece, and surely not Athens, and the broken temples of the Acropolis, surely not venerable Rome, nor the green plain that compasses her round about, contrasting its brightness with her grey decay nor the ruined arches that stand apart in the plain and clothe their looped and windowed raggedness with vines. We shall remember St. Peter's, not as one sees it when he walks the streets of Rome and fancies all her domes are just alike, but as he sees it leagues away, when every meaner edifice has faded out of sight, and that one dome looms superbly up in the flush of sunset, full of dignity and grace, strongly outlined as a mountain. We shall remember Constantinople, and the Bosporus, the colossal magnificence of Baalbek, the pyramids of Egypt, the prodigious form, the benignant countenance of the Sphinx, Oriental Smyrna, sacred Jerusalem, Damascus, the pearl of the East, the pride of Syria, the fabled Garden of Eden, the home of princes and genii of the Arabian Nights, the oldest metropolis on earth, the one city in all the world that has kept its name, and held its place, and looked serenely on, while the kingdoms and empires of four thousand years have risen to life, enjoyed their little season of pride and pomp, and then vanished and been forgotten. End of The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain